This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Chaya Raichik of Libs of TikTok is the queen of defamation who routinely doxes and slanders LGBTQ plus people and their allies all for views, clicks, and clout on the internet. But now she's mad, and ironically, she's threatening other people with defamation lawsuits because they're daring to point out that her rhetoric sometimes leads to violence against LGBTQ plus people. They're daring to point out that what she's doing is fostering a climate of hate and bigotry towards queer people that sometimes manifests in violence. And as a result, she's trying to silence them by threatening them with defamation lawsuits. Now, said violence materializes in a variety of ways. For example, when she falsely accuses pediatric hospitals of doing sex change surgeries on minors, or claims that schools are grooming kids by distributing LGBTQ plus books to them, well, her followers sometimes get so worked up that they end up harassing or even making bomb threats to whoever's in her crosshairs, 21 and counting so far, according to a report by NBC News. But now people are pointing the finger at Chai Raichik once again because the anti-LGBTQ plus environment that she helped to cultivate at a particular school in Oklahoma led to bullying and ultimately ended in the death of a non-binary teenager named Nex Benedict after they were beaten by three girls in a school bathroom. But but before it got to that point, they were bullied relentlessly. And the Independent reports the bullying had started in earnest at the beginning of the 2023 school year, a few months after Oklahoma's Governor Kevin Stitt signed a bill that required public school students to use bathrooms that matched the sex listed on their birth certificates. A few weeks ago, on the 7th of February, the bullying allegedly erupted in violence when Nex suffered severe head injuries during a physical altercation at Owasso High School, according to the Owasso Police Department. Now, during the physical altercation, Nex was badly beaten and bruised and at one point they hit their head on the ground when they were knocked over and the school called their mom but didn't call an ambulance which is mind-boggling to me and their mom ended up taking them to the hospital later on for treatment they were subsequently dismissed in the evening and the next day well they weren't actually better they collapsed and by the time emts arrived they had already stopped breathing and died shortly after a 16 year old child died. They lost their life in a likely hate crime that occurred at a place where they were supposed to be safe, at school. But in Oklahoma, the bathroom usage of trans children is policed thanks to a law signed by Oklahoma's Republican governor, which can and often does lead to bullying when students suddenly are using different bathrooms than the ones that they were using. And furthermore, Here's where Chaya Raichik comes into play. The Independent continues, An Owasso High School teacher who Nex had greatly admired resigned in 2022 after they were featured in one of Miss Raichik's posts. Quote, Nex was very angry about it, Miss Benedict said. Miss Benedict said that teachers who encouraged debate about gender issues were not promoting sexualized content. Quote, they're allowing the students to be who they are. Now, what exactly did that teacher do that was so bad, you ask? Well, 
In a now-deleted tweet, Libs of TikTok shared a video of him telling LGBTQ plus youth, quote, if your parents don't accept you for who you are, fuck them. I'm your parents now. In a small town, that led to controversy, and that teacher resigned. Let me just say this. The fact that that teacher resigned is absurd because that is what adults should be doing. Affirming the identities of LGBTQ plus youth can be life-saving. Queer youth, especially trans youth, are disproportionately at risk for suicidal ideation. So to have someone there to, to accept them and affirm their identity is really important. But queer students lost an ally at that school who dared to defend them. Next, lost someone who they cared about, who cared about them, who could be there for them as a mentor. Now, I haven't seen anyone blame Chaya Raichik directly for Nex's death, but people have said that adults politicizing trans issues and policing every aspect of their existence is going to have a ripple effect, right? When politicians and parents demonize trans people, their kids hear that and adopt the same hatred towards their peers who happen to be trans or non-binary, which then results in bullying. And after Chaya Raichik harassed Nexus teacher into resigning, Oklahoma school superintendent Ryan Walter appointed her to the Oklahoma Department of Education's Library Media Advisory Committee, meaning that this person who doesn't even live in that state with no children is going to be able to police content for students in Oklahoma schools. And here he is with the picture of her tweeting on February 6th, making schools safe, i.e. purging schools of LGBTQ plus affirming material and adults. A day after that photo was taken, we learned how safe the schools are being made in Oklahoma, especially if you're a non-binary student. So when a stochastic terrorist who made a name for herself on the internet by smearing and doxing innocent queer people and their allies is appointed to a position of power over students in Oklahoma schools, it's not unreasonable to ask whether or not the adults here share some culpability. Not just Chaya Raichik, but everyone here, the politicians, the people at the school. I mean, this was a failure. They failed next. Maybe next was bullied by students that were taught trans people aren't people because that's what they hear all the fucking time. I mean, if the school didn't even have the courtesy to call an ambulance, I have to assume that this speaks to their general lack of regard for trans students overall. In fact, one TikToker, I think, put it best. Far-right Republican rhetoric contributed to the beating death of a 16-year-old student in Oklahoma. Just a few weeks ago, Ryan Waters, the superintendent of schools in Oklahoma, added the creator of libs of TikTok to the school library board. And it was too much even for the people of Oklahoma. There was no benefit to putting a woman from California who has no children in the Oklahoma school system on the school board when the entire ethos of her social media account is to attack, dehumanize, criticize, and dox queer people. And that hateful rhetoric and dehumanizing of queer people, coupled with the broad attacks on trans children, resulted in the death of a child. That's exactly right. This outcome was inevitable, given how hyperbolic and vitriolic and outrageous the rhetoric about trans people has become in this country. Not just in Oklahoma, all around the country. But that mild criticism there from that one TikTok creator was, I guess, too much for Shia Raichik because she is now threatening to sue her for saying what I think 
everyone sees as obvious. She writes, here's an account with 3 million followers just casually blaming a teen's death on me. She says, I contributed to the death and my rhetoric resulted in the death. Defamation doesn't even begin to cover what this is. This is a straight up libel. I will not tolerate this. And then the emojis indicates that she's planning to sue. Now, it's incredible that Chaya Raichik of all people would cry about defamation for the fact that that is her favorite thing in the world to do. She defames people all the time. She defamed Nexus teacher and accused him of grooming all because he said he would accept queer students rejected by their parents. So she loves defamation, but all of a sudden she thinks defamation is bad. But here's the thing. This isn't defamation. She's not being defamed here. But the goal here in threatening to sue people who are criticizing her is to intimidate them into silence, bully them into shutting up. And that's not me saying this, even though that's generally what cowards tend to do. She basically admitted that this was the goal. She, she knows that she doesn't have a case, but she just wants them to stop criticizing her. No, I am. I, I, I'm discussing. I'm discussing it with the legal team. Like, it's not off the table. And I mean, it's also like, there, there's another aspect of like, you know, e even if you can't win the defamation case or like there's a light, very likely chance you won't win. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it still might be worth it to take action just so that they stop this behavior. And that, my friends, is what we call a slap suit. And thankfully, many states now have protections against these kinds of lawsuits. So people who frivolously sue critics don't only get their cases dismissed, but they're also on the hook for legal fees as well if it's determined that the lawsuit they brought forward was indeed a slap suit. This would be the case with these threats that she's doing right now. So it's a dangerous game to play, honestly, if you're Chaya Raichik, especially for the fact that queer people she defamed could actually have legitimate defamation cases against her. So you would think that she'd want to save her money for those cases in the event, you know, one of the people she defamed chooses to sue her. But I mean, if you want to pay the legal fees of people who you're planning to sue, go ahead, do it, because you're going to be the one who loses. But I mean, this is what she tends to do. She weaponizes her large platform against innocent people and directs hate and incites harassment against them. And if that doesn't sufficiently get them to back down or shut up, she then threatens to sue. For example, journalist Emily Liebert of The Cut reached out to Rychik for a request for comment about an article that she's writing about next. And uh, this is what Rychik did. She tagged her and accused her of doing a hit piece, all because she's reaching out for a request for comment beyond the pale. But I mean, if she didn't feel responsible in any way whatsoever, why wouldn't she respond? Why not defend herself and answer the questions of these journalists? Why not, at a minimum, offer condolences to Nexus family to show that you're not a complete monster? Well, it's because Chaya Raichik is a monster. She's an immoral person who's opportunistic, who doesn't care about the people that she hurts. But I want to take a moment to talk specifically about Nex because they seemed like a really great kid. And it's so sad that we no longer have them in this world. The Independent reports that they were a straight A student with the cat named Zeus, and they were really into video games, specifically Ark and Minecraft. And their life was made a living hell all because of who they were, because they were non-binary. The school failed them, politicians in their state failed them, and other queer, trans, and non-binary students probably see stories like this and feel hopeless, and I understand why you feel this way. But there's a really important message that I want to share with you from the TikToker who Rychik is threatening to sue, and I'm going to leave you with what she has to say because what she says now is really important. And if you're a kid out there right now who identifies as non-binary and you're seeing this kind of stuff and it's making you feel very hopeless, just know that there are people out here who are fighting for you, who are fighting to make sure that this never happens again. 
You will get to grow up. You will get to be who you want to be. And we will not let them take that away from you. So stay with me. Well, we got another indication that the far-right majority on the Supreme Court is very interested in overturning Obergefell v. Hodges, which, as you all know, is the landmark 2015 decision by the court that declared bans on same-sex marriages unconstitutional. Slate's Mark Joseph Stern writes via Twitter, quote, Justice Alito takes aim at Obergefell again, warning that the decision means Americans who do not hide their adherence to traditional religious beliefs about homosexual conduct are being labeled as bigots and treated as such by the state and society. Now, he made this comment in response to the court's decision to deny a writ of certiorari in the case of Missouri Department of Corrections v. Gene Finney. Now, the details about that case aren't important for purposes of this video, but I'll give you the quick rundown. In essence, that case deals with jury selection involving a case about employment discrimination against the lesbian woman, and the appeals court held that jurors can be struck if they're Christian because presumably they couldn't be impartial in a case involving a lesbian woman woman since their religion teaches them that homosexuality is a sin. Now, the specific question in that case was whether or not it's unconstitutional to strike jurors specifically because of religious stereotypes, the belief that they're probably going to be bigoted against this lesbian woman, therefore, they can't be part of the jury here. And the appeals court said no. Now, the Supreme Court decided to not take up this case themselves. And while Alito agrees with that decision, he still thinks that the lower court's reasoning is flawed specifically because of Obergefell v. Hodges. So here's what he says, quote, in this case, the court below reasoned that a person who still holds traditional religious views on questions of sexual morality is presumptively unfit to serve on a jury in a case involving a party who is a lesbian. That holding exemplifies the danger that I anticipated in Obergefell v. Hodges, namely that Americans who do not hide their adherence to traditional religious beliefs about homosexual conduct will be labeled as bigots treated as such by the government. The opinion of the court in that case made it clear that the decision should not be used in that way, but I am afraid that this admonition is not being heeded by our society. Now, just stop for a moment and imagine that you are the attorney of this lesbian clients. If somebody says that they have deeply held religious beliefs, would you not want to strike them during the jury selection process? Because obviously, they're not going to see a problem with this person being fired because of her sexuality, because they think that discrimination is A-OK, -okay, because that's what their religion tells them is appropriate. So it's obvious that in order to make sure that the jury is impartial, you have to make sure there's no discrimination. And one way that you suss that out is by asking them about their religiosity. That's just objective reality. Christians in this country are disproportionately likely to be homophobic and transphobic. Not all of them, but most of them. Statistically speaking, that's just the fact. So Alito might not like that people assume this about Christians, but I mean, it's not an incorrect assumption. Now, his logic here is contradictory because on one hand, he literally admits that the lower court made it clear, these are his words, that the ruling should not be used to justify discrimination in a broader sense based on religiosity. But the problem that he points out is that society is assuming religious people are all bigots. And Obergefell v. Hodges is responsible for this mentality collectively since it normalized same-sex marriages on the societal level. Therefore, Blame Obergefell v. Hodges. That's led to discrimination against Christians due to stereotypes about them being homophobic. That is him right there 
in a very sloppy way, laying the groundwork for the foundation for a constitutional justification to overturn Obergfell v. Hodges. If you'll recall, Clarence Thomas already signaled support for overturning Obergfell in other cases as well in his concurring opinion in Dobbs. So that's at least two votes against marriage equality in the event it ever comes back to the Supreme Court. Now, if I had to guess, I think it would probably be struck down in a 5-4 decision. Now, if that happened, what would that mean for couples in same-sex marriages right now? And it really depends on the magnitude of their ruling in this hypothetical, albeit likely scenario. But assuming that they chose to go as far as they did with Roe, well, they'd strike down Obergfell in its entirety, which means that states could once again ban same-sex marriages. However, states would not be able to invalidate existing ones, and they would also have to recognize out-of-state marriages thanks to the Marriage Equality Act signed into law by President Biden, which codifies Obergfell v. Hodges into law to an extent. Now, I say to an extent because there's still a degree of discrimination there that doesn't exist under the status quo in Obergfell because it still creates an undue burden on same-sex couples and forces them to go out of state to get married when opposite-sex couples don't have to do the same thing for basic civil rights. But this was the compromise agreed to by Democrats to get Republicans on board. And because of that, it's still necessary to keep Obergfell v. Hodges as the status quo since that makes same-sex couples equal, full stop. But if they overturned Obergfell and then the status quo became the Marriage Equality Act, well then, if you live in a red state like Texas, for example, or Florida, your life is gonna be a little bit more difficult if you want to get married, right? You'd have to go to a different state. Now, to be clear, the Supreme Court could strike down the Marriage Equality Act as well if we really wanna catastrophize here since they gave themselves the power to determine the constitutionality of laws that Congress passed in Marbury versus Madison. So the point is that nothing is guaranteed with extremists in power and any rights that we have now, we shouldn't take them for granted because they could be gone in the near future. But in conclusion, Obergfell is on the chopping block. And if the Supreme Court was bold enough to overturn Roe v. Wade, we have to assume that any and all of our other civil rights are also on the chopping block as well. So it's an unfortunate situation, but I don't think anyone is surprised to learn that these SCOTUS justices are chomping at the bit to take away more of our civil rights. Well, I unfortunately have some alarming news. COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, is bipartisan legislation sponsored by Republican Marsha Blackburn and Democrat Richard Blumenthal that now has 62 co-sponsors in the Senate. Yeah. Now, if you're unfamiliar with COSA, its goal is to minimize the negative effects of social media on minors after researchers found that platforms like TikTok and Instagram were purposefully promoting dangerous content to teens. For example, the Eating Disorders Coalition, who endorsed COSA, explained in a press release, quote, social media companies knowingly promote harmful mental health content to youth in return for boosted engagement and profits. According to research, platforms place extreme pro-eating disorder, suicide and depression content next to youth targeting advertising and serve this content to maximize engagement and spending. And they go on to explain the stunning number of pro-eating disorder and pro-self-harm content that is being served to minors on a daily basis. So it is a genuine problem and regulating social media companies who publish this sort of content does sound worthwhile on paper, but in practice, the way that COSA is designed would end up hurting more young people in the end. As Fight for the Future, an internet rights group explains, COSA uses two methods to quote, protect kids, and both of them are awful. First, COSA would 
pressure platforms to install filters that would wipe the net of anything deemed inappropriate for minors. This equals instructing platforms to censor plain and simple. Places that already use content filters have restricted important information about suicide prevention and LGBTQ plus support groups, and COSA would spread this kind of censorship to every corner of the internet. It's no surprise that anti-right zealots are excited about COSA. It would let them shut down websites that cover topics like race, gender, and sexuality. Second, COSA would ramp up the online surveillance of all internet users by expanding the use of age verification and parental monitoring tools. Not only are these tools needlessly invasive, they're a massive safety risk for young people who could be trying to escape domestic violence and abuse. Now, the main question is, who gets to decide what is and isn't appropriate for minors? Because that can vary depending on the person. Now, as the New Republic explains, well, the person who gets to decide is state attorneys general. They would be the arbiters of alleged failures to, quote, prevent and mitigate such harms with the power to impose penalties on platforms. Such actions could be initiated by the attorneys general themselves if they feel that any resident of their state is threatened or adversely affected by the engagement of any person in a practice that violates this act. So stop for a moment and try to think about the implications of this and how it could be used. A Republican attorney general like Ken Paxton in Texas, for example, could deem any and all websites about teen pregnancy as inappropriate because they provide minors with information about contraception and abortion. Perhaps a suicide prevention website like The Trevor Project, which specifically tries to stop queer youth from harming themselves, could be inappropriate since it affirms the identities of young LGBTQ plus people and thus encourages homosexuality and grooms them or some bullshit that they might come up with. The possibilities here are endless. And I'm not being overly cynical here with these examples because Marsha Blackburn, one of the co-sponsors of COSA, literally admitted that this law would be used to censor LGBTQ plus content. Protecting minor children from the transgender and this culture and that influence. And I would add to that watching what's happening on social media. And I've got the Kids Online Safety Act that I think we're going to end up getting through um, probably this summer. Uh, this would put a duty of care and responsibility on the social media platforms. And this is where children are being indoctrinated. They're hearing things at school and then they're getting onto YouTube to watch a video and all of a sudden this comes to them. Uh, and they're on Snapchat or they're on Instagram and they click on something and the next thing you know they're being inundated with it. Parents need to be watching this, teachers need to be watching, and protecting our children and making certain that they are not exposed to things that they are emotionally not mature enough to handle. So, I mean, you heard it straight from the horse's mouth. She is explicitly promoting COSA as a weapon against LGBTQ plus indoctrination. Meaning that any content that affirms the identity of young LGBTQ plus people, which is necessary for suicide prevention, by the way, could be censored because of her law. So if you're a younger queer person and you have no one in your real life to talk to, sometimes finding an online community or a content creator that talks about your lived experience can be life saving. And taking that away from them in the name of safety 
is downright disgusting and Orwellian and dangerous. Now, that's not to say that there aren't genuine concerns about social media, because there are. I'm personally worried about the proliferation of misogynistic red pill content that teaches young men to resent women. I'm also really concerned about the rise in white nationalism online and people with large platforms promoting white identity politics and white supremacy. And these social media companies really do have perverse incentives. And as a society, I do think that we need to find some way to deal with it. But this isn't it. This is not the way to deal with it. It's an attack on free speech that could ironically end up harming more kids in the long run than it's trying to help. If you even want to assume that the architects of this bill want to help kids. I mean, maybe, but I don't know if their motivations are pure. I think that this is a power grab that they're going to use for really nefarious reasons. Now, this is why so many civil rights organizations like the Human Rights Campaign and GLAD came out against this initially because of all of the negative implications and because of who's promoting this. Now, I say that they initially came out against it because they ultimately dropped their opposition to COSA after adjustments to it were made to specifically address the concerns of these types of civil rights groups that were against it. Now, it was amended, and these changes are the reason why this bill was able to attract so many new co-sponsors like Chuck Schumer and Chris Murphy. And to be clear, the changes that they made to this legislation do make it better ostensibly, but the existing problems are still there. So let me explain. The Electronic Frontier Foundation writes, the latest version removes the authority of state attorneys general to sue or prosecute people for not complying with the duty of care, but COSA still permits state officials to enforce other parts of the bill based on their political whims, and we expect those officials to use this new law to the same censorious ends as they would have of previous versions. And the legal requirements of COSA are still only possible for sites to safely follow if they restrict access to content based on age, effectively mandating age verification. The updated duty of care says that a platform shall, quote, exercise reasonable care in creation and implementation of any design feature to prevent and mitigate those harms. The difference is subtle and ultimately unimportant. There is no case law defining what is, quote, reasonable care in this context. This language still means increased liability merely for hosting and distributing otherwise legal content that that the government, in this case the FTC, claims is harmful. What COSA tries to do here then is to launder restrictions on content that lawmakers do not like through liability for supposedly harmful design features. But the First Amendment still prohibits Congress from indirectly trying to censor lawful speech it disfavors. Allowing the government to ban content designs is a dangerous idea. If the FTC decided that direct messages or encrypted messages were leading to harm for minors under this language, they could bring an enforcement action against the platform that allowed users to send such messages. Now, if this all sounds super complicated, let me simplify it for you. The updated version of COSA is fundamentally the same, but it is semantically different and it does force attorneys general to go through extra steps and attack the same content they want to attack in a roundabout way, but they still have the power to do that if this were to become a law. If a Republican attorney general, for example, wants to ban abortion content, well, he can still do that under this new version, but rather than saying that the content itself is inappropriate because he's personally anti-abortion, he just have to challenge it on the basis of its design. So you find a new way to challenge the content you already don't like. So, for example, if the content that is 
talking about abortion and it's targeted towards minors asks for email for newsletters or it enables push notifications or links to an external source or encourages users to download an app. Those are all grounds that an attorney general can use to challenge the websites. If you allow them to challenge a website on the basis of design, they can find anything to nitpick and get the website taken down. So, I mean, they could still use this to accomplish the same end. And if you think that they wouldn't do that, try to remember the way that Republicans in red states effectively regulated abortion clinics out of existence before Roe v. Wade was overturned. I mean, COSA gives them the power to do just that, albeit digitally. And they've already been chomping at the bit to do this because as the Washington Post reports, state attorneys general, meanwhile, have launched a flurry of investigations into the way social media platforms could be hurting kids by deploying addictive design features culminating in a barrage of lawsuits against Facebook and Instagram parent company Meta in October. So we're playing a dangerous game here, and the bipartisan support that this legislation has is genuinely worrying. Its support is broad, and it ranges from fascists like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley to center-right senators like Joe Manchin to even center-left senators like Elizabeth Warren and Sheldon Whitehouse. And if it were to come up for a vote today, it would easily pass the Senate, and no, it couldn't be filibustered because it has 62 co-sponsors, meaning it has 62 presumed votes. It would pass easily. Now, that is concerning, but the silver lining is that if this were to come up for a vote in the House, it's hard to say if it would get that much support, and they're unprepared to even pass it in the House because they haven't in even introduced a companion piece to the Senate version, which is good to hear. So that means there's still time to stop COSA if we act now, but that means you've got to call your senator and let him or her know that COSA is dangerous and censoring the internet is a violation of freedom of speech, and you do not want them to support it. In fact, you demand that they don't support this. Be polite when you call, but let them know that COSA is bad and you want them to vote against it. Paige Elmek of The New Republic has a really interesting write-up about Ron DeSantis having a sudden change of heart about the policy that he is most known for. I'm, of course, talking about book bans, and his new position is essentially that book bans are still good, of course, but maybe they shouldn't ban as many books in Florida as they did. Perhaps they got a little bit carried away. Oh, and none of this is his fault, by the way. All these book bans... He takes no responsibility. So basically, he held a press conference and subsequently put out this press release talking about book bans titled, quote, Governor Ron DeSantis debunks book ban hoax calls on Florida legislature to amend law to prevent abuse from activists. OK, interesting. So it goes on to read today. Governor Ron DeSantis continued to debunk the false narrative that the state of Florida bans books. I'm sorry, but this is just an objective fact. Florida does not ban books. Instead, the state has empowered parents to object to obscene material in the classroom. What do we call that when the parents who object end up getting the books removed exactly? Anyways, it continues. Still, some have abused this process to object to items including books about Johnny Appleseed, The Giver, and even the Bible. Hmm, that might be the real catalyst for this change of heart. Governor DeSantis is calling on the legislature to fine-tune this process to prevent people from taking advantage of Florida law that is designed solely to remove 
inappropriate material from the classroom. Now, the changes that he is proposing includes the DOA stopping bad actors in schools from politicizing books in some way. He doesn't necessarily specify how. He also suggests limiting who can challenge books to parents and uh, just parents with kids at schools. Now, in proposing changes to his own laws, he is inadvertently acknowledging that this policy has been a complete and utter failure. And I'm sorry, but if your law can be weaponized for political purposes by activists, that's your fault. You're the one who signed it into law, DeSantis. You are the one who chose to not just sign it into law, but promote it and defend it again and again and again. Now, as the New Republic points out, regardless if he wants to take responsibility or not, this is his doing. Quote, in reality, these ridiculous book bans are a direct cause of DeSantis signing House Bill 1069 into law in May of 2023. Other legislation in Florida, including the Parental Rights and Education Bill, this is the Don't Say Gay Law, and the Stop Woke Act have led to further restrictions. Under DeSantis, Florida allowed anyone to challenge books in school libraries that they deemed to be inappropriate, often books that feature characters or topics on race, sex, and gender. Sometimes books have been banned thanks to a single challenge. And speaking of bad actors, quote, DeSantis has been celebrated by Moms for Liberty, the parental rights group inciting many of these blanket bans. The group has thanked the governor for blazing a trail on school book bans. He even appointed a co-founder of Moms for Liberty to the Florida Commission on Ethics. Yeah, it's so funny that he is now complaining about bad actors that he himself emboldened. But DeSantis didn't have a sudden change of heart, nor is he frustrated with the activists who are supposedly taking advantage of these book ban laws. The law is working as intended, but the problem is that it's just not as popular as he wants it to be, and it resulted in national blowback. So, in other words, he's forced to cave, walk it back a little bit, right? Not back down completely from the position, still maintain that book bans are good and we should have some process that we implement to where parents who are fascists like him can challenge certain books if they are offensive when it comes to race and gender and sexuality. But ultimately he realizes this kind of got a little bit ridiculous and it did. I mean, you can't give him credit for this because it's like acknowledging that the sky is blue. It's something so obvious that anyone who denies it is denying reality. But here's the thing. This isn't the first time that a book ban law has blown up in a GOP lawmaker's face. So in Utah, one Republican legislator, he introduced a bill to ban books similar to the Don't Say Gay law. It got signed into law. And then once it was in effect, guess what happened? Well, parents started challenging books that they didn't want to be challenged, like the Bible. And that actually led to the Bible being banned. And then guess what happened? He called for the legislature to amend his own law after the Bible was banned, saying, no, 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 not that book. So you love when these GOP lawmakers get a taste of their own medicine because they immediately backtrack. You know, it's not like they're going to be principled and say, listen, sure, these parents make some good points about the Bible being a little bit offensive. It has references to bestiality and slavery and whatnot. So even though I don't necessarily agree, you know, I am going to give parents the right to challenge that book because I want parents who are Christian to be able to challenge books that they deem inappropriate as well. But they're not doing that. They're just saying, mm, we really just want to ban specific books, but they can't just say we want to ban books about sexual orientation and gender identity and race because that would be unconstitutional. That would be discrimination. So instead, they have to have these really broad policies that end up 
coming back to bite them in the ass. And whenever it happens, you love to see it. But back to Ron DeSantis, he's caving. And uh, good, whenever we see a fascist back down from a position, that is a win. It means that fascists aren't infallible, even though they want you to believe that they are all-knowing and all-powerful. No, sometimes things that they do, especially really stupid things, blows up in their face. And whenever that happens, we celebrate that. But there are levers that... Biden could use, which he hasn't used. There are levers which previous presidents have used when Israel has, in their view, crossed the line. For example? Go back to 1956. Eisenhower oh, threatened six. sanctions if Israel didn't pull its forces out of Sinai. Um, Reagan, you know, um, held up delivery of fighter jets over Israel's action in Lebanon. George Bush Sr. blocked loan guarantees because of settlement building. He did. I was there the day that uh, that I, I, well, you're going back to 56, I mean. So these levers are there, the, aren't they? Well, there's some, but the president has uh, said something about uh, the, uh, the, the settlements. He has said something about the settlements. But saying and, and blocking uh, weapon supplies, for instance, well, are very different things, aren't well, they? Well, it's not, it's a path. You just watched a snippet from an interview with Nancy Pelosi at the Munich Security Conference. And as you saw, she had absolutely no good response when she was confronted by journalist Tim Sebastian about the fact that Biden is condemning Israel's conduct on one hand, but on another hand, he's still giving them weapons. In fact, John Cassidy of The New Yorker shared these two headlines from The Wall Street Journal that were on the same page. One headline says Biden presses Netanyahu to accept plan, and the other reads U.S. is preparing to send bombs, other arms to Israel. Yeah, so he wants to have it both ways. He wants the Democratic Party voting base to think that he's against the actions of the Israeli government, but he's refusing to hold Israel accountable in any way. In fact, the U.S. just voted again to veto another U.N. resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, which is the third time that they've done this. And to make matters worse, Biden is scheduled to attend a private fundraiser with pro-Israel billionaire and racist Haim bond that costs up to $250,000 for a ticket. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Saban, he recommended additional scrutiny for Muslims in order to ensure that they're not terrorists. So that's the kind of person who's influencing Biden. And you'd think that Biden would disavow support from a Trumpian Islamophobe like Saban if he really wanted us to believe that he's against Israel's actions because Saban isn't against what Israel is doing. So maybe having him in your ear Having really high dollar fundraisers with him isn't necessarily the best look, especially if you're trying to repair that bridge that you burnt with Arab Americans. But Biden's not doing that. And his actions here are indefensible, which is why Pelosi was checkmated when she was confronted about Biden's refusal to hold Israel accountable in any meaningful way. But Tim Sebastian wasn't done, and he continued to press her on the matter further. But I guess my question is, at what point would you, a longtime friend of Israel, say to the government there... The price of this military operation is too high and is no longer morally defensible. Or are there no limits as far as you're concerned? No red lines? Well, uh, uh, why would they care if I said that? I mean, why but if would you they don't, care? If you don't, you're staying silent and uh, you're no, complicit, we're not saying aren't silent. You? No, we're not saying silent. We're saying it is, uh, it's, it's wrong for them to do what they're doing to the extent that they are doing it. Unbelievable. Why would they care what I have to say? Really, Nancy? This is a question that you, the former Speaker of the House, is unironically asking? 
Let's pretend for a moment that she doesn't actually know the answer to this question. But the reason why they care is because you have the power to stop supplying them with weapons. You have the power to stop making the money printer go burr. But you're not doing that. And even if the U.S. was powerless here in this situation, which they're not, but assume for a moment that they were, and no matter what they said, Israel wouldn't listen. Well, at a minimum you would at least think that you should stop supplying them with weapons and maybe at least allow one UN resolution condemning their actions to go through, but you're not even doing that. So if they see that there's a pattern that your words hold no weight and there's never any accountability for their actions, then what incentive do they have to listen to you? I mean, imagine if you took your kid to the park and he started to hit another kid with a stick and you told him to stop, but he didn't listen because he knew that you weren't actually going to get off your ass and take the stick away from him. That makes you responsible for the actions of your child, and that pain inflicted on the other child is your fault because you let him hit the other child, and you didn't make him stop. That doesn't mean that you beat your child in response to him hurting this other child. It means that you show the child that there are consequences for their actions. They leave the park immediately if he starts doing this. They lose some of their privileges. I don't know. Maybe you take away their... TV or their iPad. I don't know what the kids are playing with these days. No Bluey for a week. And I don't mean to be overly reductive by equating this relationship between the United States and Israel as one that's paternal, but for better or worse, I mean, that kind of is the dynamic here, right? The fact remains that Israel could not continue doing what they're doing if the United States actually held them accountable, but they're not. And that's why they're continuing to defy the United States, because you're still giving them weapons. You're still not allowing a single U.N. vote on the Security Council to go through. There's just been no accountability. They are able to openly defy you and international law, and there's no reason to stop. So why would they? But there's one more clip that I want to show you, because it actually gets even more embarrassing for Pelosi, if you could believe that. The danger for the U.S., that if you don't like what Israel is doing, and the president has made it clear that some of what Israel is doing he doesn't like, That's right. and, and you go on supplying them with hardware to do those things, you own this operation every bit as much as they do, don't no, you? No, we don't. We don't. We have always supported Israel as our national security friend, largely because it was in our interest to do so. It largely because it was in to do so. We had shared values that only democracy uh, in the region. Uh, the behavior of Netanyahu is, in my view, inexcusable in terms of how it has affected the collateral damage to children and families and the rest. But nobody can take away the right of any country to defend itself that has been brutally attacked in that way. Uh, uh, 28,000 Palestinian lives is more than self-defense, yeah. isn't it? It's more than self-defense. Well, their goal, is, and I just saw... Um, uh, President Herzog, who, for whom I have enormous respect, and uh, I said, how are, you know, how are things? And he basically said, we just have a couple more steps and then we'll be through this. So that sounded optim optimistic to me that they think that it is in reach to rid Gaza of Hamas. I don't hear a lot of the people and they're outside my house almost every day, but nobody cares about that. And I don't mean to make that a big thing, but I just hear them uh, saying, free the hostages. I don't hear any of them saying Hamas is a terrorist organization. I hear them praising Hamas. I hear them ignoring the hostages. So there's a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, 
behavior we all have to address here. Last week, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, wondered aloud why the US isn't doing more to have its warnings taken seriously in Jerusalem. If you believe, he said, that too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide fewer arms in order to prevent so many people being killed. He's got a point, hasn't he? Israel is very well equipped with weaponry. There's nothing that we have sent since October 7th that has, uh, has uh, contributed to this brutality. Uh, in the longer run, it, they're in a dangerous neighborhood, and we will uh, continue to support Israel. He's got a good point, doesn't he? Of course he does, which is why she tried to deflect and outright lied about people protesting in front of her house, saying that they're praising Hamas. Nancy, you know that that's a lie. You know that they're not praising Hamas. But the reason why they're not calling on Hamas to release the hostages is because our government doesn't fund Hamas. It funds Israel. We have no way of holding Hamas accountable, either directly or indirectly. And more importantly, more than 100 hostages were released during the temporary ceasefire in December. So perhaps stopping the bloodshed is the best means to that end. But she said something else in particular that was uh, really telling to me. She referenced the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, and she said that she has enormous respect for him, unlike Netanyahu. This signals to the Democratic Party voting base that the Democratic Party is trying behind the scenes to work with more reasonable actors in Israel to rein in Netanyahu, whose behavior she called inexcusable. But the problem with this strategy here, this appeal to Democratic Party voters, is that its success hinges entirely on the hope that they're stupid. And that they don't know that Isaac Herzog is in full support of Netanyahu's, quote, inexcusable behavior. In fact, less than two weeks into their genocide, he suggested that Gazan civilians were all legitimate targets because they're all responsible for the actions of Hamas since they didn't rise up to overthrow them. Now, if the Democratic Party's base doesn't know about this, then Nancy Pelosi here looks reasonable. You know, she's trying to do her best to reign in Netanyahu. But if they know that Isaac Herzog, like Netanyahu, is a psychopath who's bloodthirsty, well then... She just looks like a liar, and it looks that way because she is a liar. But she's optimistic, I guess, uh, as she said, because Isaac Herzog told her that there's only a couple more steps until they're done. Mm, a couple more steps. I wonder if she asked him how many thousands of lives will be lost in these last couple of steps. It's just so frustrating to watch this because she is so dishonest here. And another thing that she said that really bothered me was uh, collateral damage. She used that term, which I find gross because it minimizes the loss of human life. And it also suggests that these deaths were all unintended, just an unintended consequence of a military operation. Full stop. But make no mistake about it. This is all intentional. It's not an accident. Israel is purposefully killing children both directly and indirectly. And not only are they starving the population and putting them on the brink of famine, but their snipers have literally targeted and murdered multiple children. Collateral damage makes it seem like Israel is guilty of manslaughter, when in actuality, we're talking about them being guilty of mass murder and genocide. But of course, she's trying to downplay and sanitize Israel's actions here because she's complicit. So she's going to say what will make Democratic Party voters feel better and what makes her feel better, what helps her to sleep with herself at night. If I were in her position, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Supporting a genocide in a position of power, like I just, I don't know 
that I can compartmentalize in the way that she does. But we have a lot of lawmakers, apparently, who are able to do this. She's not alone. John Fetterman, Joe Biden, many lawmakers in both parties are perfectly fine aiding and abetting Israel as they do a genocide. So, I mean, this interview is really revealing. Nancy Pelosi came off terribly here because she tried to defend something that is just indefensible. She tried to shrug off our country's culpability in genocide. And even though a lot of Americans are falling for her doublespeak and bullshit right now, I think decades from now, we're all going to look back at this moment with great shame. When it comes to Gaza, the Republican Party's rhetoric has been absolutely atrocious and genocidal. But there was something that was said recently by a Republican member of Congress that is so beyond the pale that it is still shocking. Even in 2024, yes, a Republican can say something that actually shocks me. So Representative Andy Ogles of Tennessee's 5th Congressional District was asked about the children that are dying in Gaza. Take a look at his response. No evidence of that. I've seen the footage, and you haven't. I've seen the footage. You've seen footage of shredded children's bodies. That's my taxpayer dollars. I'm going to going to bomb those kids. So I think we should kill them all. If that makes you feel better, everybody. Yes. Do you have a family? Hamas and the Palestinians have been attacking Israel for 20 years, and it's time to pay the price. Kill them all. Remember, he's talking about the children because that's specifically what he's being asked about. And his response was, kill them all. I understand that Republicans, they're known for saying really horrible things. Their rhetoric on Israel-Palestine has been genocidal. And at this point in time, moral depravity is just kind of like the status quo in D.C., right? We're dealing with a lot of morally bankrupt, opportunistic, borderline sociopathic people. But things like this, we should not allow to become normalized. I mean, we've got to draw the line somewhere. There has to be a point where we say enough is enough. We are not going to allow these kinds of people to represent our country when they are literally advocating for the mass slaughter of children. There are about 2.2 million people in Gaza, half of which are children. He's saying kill over a million children. That's what he's saying, nonchalantly too, by the way. Why are we tolerating this? Why are we allowing them to say these kinds of terrible things and there's no outrage? Do you see headlines about Andy Ogles calling for the mass slaughter of a million plus children? Do you see condemnations? Do you see any attempt to censure him? There's nothing. He went full Hitler and nobody's even batting an eye. That's just... That's something that we shouldn't tolerate, even if it's not that surprising. I'm sorry, we have to draw the line somewhere. And if you weren't outraged at members of Congress saying we should turn Gaza into a parking lot, maybe we should be outraged when they just explicitly say, yeah, I want to kill all of the children in Gaza. We can't allow this to happen, especially the faux outrage that we saw directed at Rashida Tlaib because she said from the river to the sea. Well, I think that everyone can see, objectively speaking, that regardless of how you feel about from the river to the sea, that is exponentially worse, orders of magnitude worse. He is saying, 
kill them all. There's no room for interpretation, no plausible deniability, and everybody's just going about their day in DC. Media's not reporting on this as he's not grabbing headlines. What the fuck is wrong with this country? He just said kill all the children and we're all just going along like it's nothing. He needs to resign. And I'm sorry, this is something that has to be said. It's not going to happen, right? He's not going to resign, but we need to put pressure on him to resign because lawmakers need to know that they can't just say deranged shit and literally go full Hitler and just have no consequences. At a minimum, he needs to feel some pressure, right? So how do we do that? Call him. He doesn't care about what we have to say, but we're going to call him anyway. His phone number is 202-225-4311. I'm going to call him on the show and just leave him a brief message. Probably not going to pick up, but I'm going to say that going full Hitler is something that we do not tolerate and he needs to resign. Congressman Andy Ogles. If you're getting this message during normal business hours, all of our lines are busy. Please leave your name, number, home address, and nature of your call. We'll get back to you shortly. Thanks again for calling. Hello, I saw a video of Congressman Andy Ogles saying that one million plus children in Gaza should all be killed. And I think that this sort of Hitlerian rhetoric should not be tolerated by a sitting member of Congress. So I'm calling on him to resign, resign in disgrace, because that type of genocidal rhetoric, somebody who's that morally bankrupt, should not be in a position of power like the congressman is in. So he needs to resign in shame immediately because this is not going to be tolerated by the American people. Again, he's not going to care. But after seeing that, you've got to find some way to let off steam and at least putting a little bit of pressure into something that is productive. Not going to do much, but we can't not do something. We can't just sit around and just accept that politicians are now calling for all children in Gaza to be killed. Like we've tolerated so much as a country allowing our politicians to fund Israel as they indiscriminately slaughter Palestinians in Gaza, 14,000 plus children. But at some point we've got to say enough is enough. And I think a really good place to start to draw the fucking line is telling politicians they need to resign if they call for the mass slaughter of children. You'll be a one-term president because you've already served, yeah. so you can only serve for one term, although they say you'll never leave office, I assume. Uh, yeah, that, you'll do. never leave. There'll never be an ele another say, election don't again. don't do it. He'll never leave. He's yeah. never going. Oh, these people. They um, are crazy. So for that reason... Well, you heard it straight from the horse's mouth, folks. Trump is not going to try to become a dictator or abuse power. And of course, he's going to leave office after his term ends. And quite frankly, the people who think otherwise are downright crazy, as he said, because, I mean, he's given us really no indication that he tried to illegally stay in power after his term ends. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength. Might have forgot about that, though. But that moment from Trump's Fox News town hall occurred during a conversation about who is potentially going going to be his running mate. And we're going to talk about that. But much like the Sean Hannity town hall, Laura Ingram kept trying to get him to reassure voters that he's not going to abuse power or become a dictator. But as you're going to see, getting Trump to stay on topic is like trying to herd cats. It's near impossible. But let me show you what I mean by that. I know you have suffered endless attacks, no doubt. But how can you assure independent and undecided voters 
that your focus as president will be on improving the state of our country and not settling those old scores? <laughs> it's just a question, I must say. <laughs> Look, I did it before. We had a great four years, especially before that very last part where COVID came in. And we did a great job there. We've been given great uh, marks on the economy and on the military and on foreign. And Trump then rambles on for more than a minute after that about the amazing job that he did and meanders endlessly until Laura Ingram finally tried to get him back on track and address the actual question that that lady asked. We're doing better than any like The question about score settling, a lot, a lot of women, you know, they don't, a lot of women voters, they don't like the name calling, they don't like the score settling, they just, they love your policies. And they just want Trump's policies, maybe not so much of the other stuff. So I think that's what the, the question, well, no, if but, you don't mind my asking, I think that's what she's getting well, at. But, I, but also you wanna say, how do you get together? We're gonna to get together through success. When this country, the country was at a level that we've never, we had the best employment numbers in history, everything was good. And this country was coming together. Then we got hit with COVID, but this country came together. Uh, I don't care about the revenge thing. I know they usually, usually use the word revenge. Will there be revenge? Uh, my revenge will be success. Well, I'll be damned. He actually answered the question. Hmm. It is possible. Now, if he didn't whine so much about his own persecution and didn't already promise to pursue revenge in his second term, I'd say that's a pretty reasonable way to address the question of how a president can bring Americans together. Economic success is a great unifier, but let's be real. Presidents don't have as much control over the economy as Americans think they do, and Trump wasn't concerned about helping ordinary Americans. In fact, he was vehemently against labor rights, and he had no interest in raising the minimum wage and doing anything to alleviate people with student loan debt, and not to mention his signature policy achievement was tax cuts for him and his rich friends. So all of this chatter about how wonderful the economy was under Trump was a narrative created specifically by economic elites in the media who also benefited from his tax cuts. But for most people, People, things didn't actually feel much better. And the reason why it felt that way is because it was that way. Maybe some Americans felt more optimistic because of the stock market doing better, which is great for 401ks if you have one, but a lot of people don't have one. But for most people, when he was president, shit didn't change. Americans continued to live paycheck to paycheck while Republicans and pundits talked at us about how great the economy was doing when we didn't feel it. And to be fair, all politicians do this. Trump is al isn't alone here. Biden does the same thing as well, even though now a lot of people are struggling after the COVID era stimulus policies have expired. But if a president really did want to unify this country, Trump is correct that the collective economic success of everyone would be one way to do it. But let's not pretend that he's interested in doing that at all. Trump is a petty bitch. And of course, he's going to seek vengeance rather than lifting all of us up during a second term. But I want to go back to the VP talk because one of the potential names being discussed here is Tim Scott, who was at this town hall. And even though Trump is trying to compliment him, I think this was one of the most degrading things I've ever seen. He's been so great. He's been such a great advocate. I, I have to say, I don't, this is in a very positive way. Tim Scott, he has been much better for me than he was for himself. I watched his campaign <laughs> and he doesn't like talking about himself, but boy, does he talk about Trump. And I said, you know, I called him. I said, Tim, you're better for me than you were for yourself. But he's fantastic and he's a fantastic person. Uh, so no, someone, who can, somebody step in. That can someone who can step into the role. Yes, Laura, of course, I'm basing my choice off of their qualifications and their ability to lead and not how much ass kissing they're doing. But I mean, Tim Scott, is this really what you want to be doing right now? Pathetically groveling at the feet of a fascist by degrading yourself for a chance at power? 
You really want to do this? I mean, I just find this so humiliating. No amount of money or power could get me to do that, could get me to become a sycophant on that level to anyone. It's just embarrassing. And look, I hate to say it, but I kind of felt bad for Tim Scott just in the sense that like I felt secondhand embarrassment for him, but I really shouldn't feel bad because I mean, when somebody subjects themselves to that, we really shouldn't have sympathy because this is what he wants. This is all worthwhile if he gets power. It's just shameful. But I do want to move on to other portions of the town hall. And uh, nothing that I'm about to show you is particularly shocking or ominous. But these clips, I think, best encapsulate the stupidity of Trump and how utterly exhausting it is. For example, when he was talking about Navalny, he threw in a random comment that is genuinely idiotic. And it's not like he hasn't said this before, but for some reason, him saying it this time triggered me. But let me show you and I'll tell you what I mean. But it's happening in our country, too. Uh, we are turning into a communist country in many ways. And if you look at it, I'm the leading candidate. I got indicted. I never heard of being indicted before. I was going to. I got indicted four times. I have eight or nine trials, all because of the fact that I'm and you know this all because of the fact that I'm in politics. Oh, that's why you're indicted, because you're in politics, right? It's not because you tried to illegally overturn the results of a Democratic election or anything. No, it's because he's in politics. Well, by that logic, if you're like Navalny and Democrats are like Putin and they're needlessly prosecuting their political opponents, why wouldn't they also prosecute other political opponents, Republicans like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis? Why just you? It's because Trump has the worst case of main character syndrome that I've ever seen, and it doesn't matter what the circumstance or scenario is. He's always the victim in that predicament, okay? So even though in this anecdote here, Putin, Navalny, he would be Putin, he's comparing himself to Navalny because, well, his actions actually led to him seeing consequences for the first time. Maybe, I mean, we don't even know if he's going to be convicted. He's indicted, 91 counts, but... He's an elite. He could get away with it, right? But even the prospect of accountability for him, it's something that he can't stand. Even before he was indicted, while he was president, literally the most powerful person on the planet, he still pretended to be the victim. So this isn't necessarily anything new for Trump, and the self-pity isn't even the part that bothered me the most about that clip. The part that bothered me the most is when he claimed that we're becoming a communist country in many ways. Now, yes, I understand that Trump does not know what communism means, obviously, and he is using communism as a synonym for authoritarianism. But when you say we're becoming a communist country, the opposite is true. We are a late stage capitalist country, and we're probably going to see flying cars before we see communism in this country. That is, of course, assuming we don't go extinct due to climate change. But I mean, we're not communist. But Trump has made this a trend in the United States where you say the opposite of what's true. And if everybody just says it, then I guess at some point enough people start to believe it. I hate that. But regardless, let's move on. So on the subject of climate change, Trump is going to complain about the efforts to transition to more sustainable technology. And um, just just watch. I believe the push to control um, gas stoves, you know, how far you could drive by forcing people into electric vehicles, all the, the, the new edicts that they really want to push out. What's really behind that? Do you believe there's a, a bigger agenda to kind of control movement, control people's freedom of movement? Well, a lot of people say that. I'm not sure. I, I just think they maybe are just mixed up or confused. They come out with 
uh, faucets where no water comes out. You know, if you go and buy a home, and they know what I mean, the showers, you stand under a shower and there's no water coming, and you're saying, you're, you end up standing there five times longer. Have you considered trying to turn the faucet all the way on? Maybe you're only turning it on a little bit. Nevertheless, continue. Uh, but they want that. They want they want the well, dishwashers to be changed. The, all of that is part of the agenda. So in Ohio, you have a great company that came to me, the dish, a dishwasher company, one of the biggest and finest companies, but they were going out of business. They said, we're not allowed to use water. Well, the Democrats banned us from using water, so I guess it's time to close up shop, guys. We're going we're gonna to go home because... We can't use water anymore. Damn. It's going to be really unfortunate when we want to drink water, but we can't use it. Democrats said so. I mean, the level of stupidity on display here is just so exhausting to me. Mentally, physically, I just can't take it. And people will respond saying, well, Mike, you're being uncharitable because he's obviously referring to regulatory changes when it comes to water and the limitation of use. But no, no, no. I don't actually believe that. I think that he, he literally believes that the dishwashing company is not allowed to use water and they had to go out of business as a result of Democrats saying no more water. I, I mean, come on. We're dealing with a potential dementia patient who suffers from delusions of grandeur that thinks he won the last election. So, of course, when a dishwashing company complains to him potentially if this even happened about the limitation of water usage or perhaps prices increasing of course he's going to take that as oh democrats said no more water period full stop because it's trump we're dealing with here now i've got one last clip to show you so he makes up a lie about mail-in voting and is immediately contradicted by laura ingram but he just keeps going and pretends like he doesn't hear her forget the past what are you going to do to make sure we don't have problems going forward if you have mail-in voting you automatically have fraud. If you have okay, well, there's mail-in voting in Florida, That's and right. you won huge. That's right. If you have it, you're going to have fraud. But you won because you don't have any. Now, before you give Laura Ingram too much credit, she was also conspiracy mongering and concern trolling about election fraud as well. But she did point out the fact that Trump was still able to win in states with mail-in voting, despite his claims of fraud, which kind of throws a whole wrench in his argument that mail-in voting leads to fraud, unless we assume that he himself is committing fraud in states with mail-in voting. But that's not the case. He's full of shit, as we all know. But I mean, that's all that I really have to say about this town hall. There's a lot more that I could talk about, but I'm gonna cut it off right here because any more will lead to more brain rot. But I mean, it's February and I've already hit peak Trump fatigue. And I actually kind of regret talking about this town hall now that we're at the end of the video because I, I feel brain rot. Like I feel like I lost multiple IQ points in the process of preparing for this video and then talking about this video and listening to Trump. I think it's just genuinely bad for my mental health. And uh, I regret doing it. So uh, I guess you're welcome, viewers. You made me do this. As you all know, Lauren Boebert decided to desert the people that she's currently representing in Colorado's third congressional district in favor of running in the fourth, which is a much safer district for a Republican to be in who doesn't have to worry about upcoming Democrats in general elections because the Republican always wins here. Now, this decision obviously was fueled by fears that she'd lose her upcoming general election to the Democrat. But the problem with this decision is that she now has to start from scratch and compete in a GOP primary and win in order to go back to Congress. Now, she probably expected to be coordinated by voters in the 4th District since she's kind of a superstar in the MAGA world, but that hasn't necessarily been the reception that she's received thus far. In fact, 
She finished in fifth place in the first straw poll after that first debate that she participated in. And a lot of Republican voters are going on the record saying how much they despise Lauren Boebert, which is a pretty bad sign. Now, one thing in particular that has kind of been a sticking point for people in this district who are evangelical is uh, the Beetlejuice incident. If you couldn't already guess, Brad Reed of Ross Story reports, Boebert is facing major skepticism from residents in her new district, despite the fact that it's even more conservative politically than the district she previously served. At issue is the nonstop controversy that swirls around Boebert, most notably the notorious incident in which she was ejected from a musical in Denver while being caught on camera, vaping in the theater and groping her date. Yeah, so I understand why a self-interested politician would want to be in a safer district, but the problem is when you have so much baggage and that much name recognition, I mean, name recognition is good in politics, but sometimes it could be bad, right? Especially when voters in this district have other options. Now, just to kind of show you what we're talking about here, here's a couple of direct quotes from the Wall Street Journal quoted by Ross Story because Wall Street Journal is paywalled. So I'm going to give you this version so that way you can actually see what they said. But anyways, a retired university employee said this about Boebert, quote, I don't appreciate as a Christian people saying they're Christian to get your vote and then turning out to be a lowlife, she explained to the Wall Street Journal. And now I just kind of think of her as a lowlife. Damn. Quote, I will not vote for her, period. Another voter told the Wall Street Journal. She's not one of us. GOP voter Tammy Fleming, meanwhile, told the Wall Street Journal that Boebert has, quote, not been well received by Republicans due to the shenanigans and the drama and moving districts. I find these quotes hilarious. Now, keep in mind that this is only anecdotal evidence. And aside from one unscientific straw poll, we really don't have any data to actually determine where she's at. So even though these quotes grab headlines and they become sensationalized, we don't actually know if these anti-Bobert Republicans are representative of the rest of the district. That's yet to be seen. However, it's not unreasonable to assume that this sentiment is pervasive throughout the district for the fact that Republican leadership at this level in this district is very, very persuasive, and they're negative towards Boebert. In fact, some of them are running against her, which is kind of fueling this division. But this district overall is described as hyper-local by the Independent, where they put more stock into what local Republican leaders say compared to the Republicans in Washington. Now, part of that is because this is a very rural district, and more importantly, as the Independent reports, quote, many still don't have computers in Lyman, about halfway between Denver and the Kansas border, and fiber optic internet remains a work in progress. So we're not dealing with your average voter here. And remember, this is Ken Buck's old district who isn't necessarily a MAGA Republican. So that Trumpian brand might actually turn off some voters in this particular district who don't really care for that type of loud politics that Trump brings. They just care about, you know, evangelicism and traditional conservatism. And, you know, as much as MAGA republicanism and fascism has kind of taken over the party, it's hard to tell whether or not voters in this district are going to be receptive to that brand of Republican Party politics. Now, aside from that, her antics have certainly turned some people off, and they are very quick to point that out. Here's some more quotes courtesy of The Independent. Quote, I won't vote for her because of who she is and what she has done. Randy Wallace, an unaffiliated voter, tells The Independent from behind the counter of his antique store in Elizabeth, 216 miles from the town where Bobert raised her boys. Quote, first thing that came to mind was carpetbagger, 100% 
percent. She's a carpetbagger. State Representative Richard Holtorf tells The Independent. He introduces himself as the most qualified and the best candidate and the rowdiest, most raucous of all. I don't mince words. I'm a cowboy and cattleman, and I shoot straight, walk straight, and talk straight. This is incredibly cringe to me. Uh, quote, the next thing that came to mind is she's a deserter. She's deserting her people out of political expediency, Holtorf says. One place Bobert certainly didn't seem to have name recognition was Lyman, where the local newspaper refrains from printing political news and where residents look askance at anyone doing anything, quote, outrageous, according to Catherine Thurston, the business manager of the Lyman leader and a native of the town. People around here used to make a deal on a handshake, Thurston tells The Independent. Quote, if you're not going to spend time talking face to face with people out here, you're probably not going to get the vote. So I would like to know the average age of people within this district because I think that could be part of the problem. Because based on the things that they're saying, like the euphemisms that they use, it leads me to believe that this is a very old district where they're literally saying things like, back in my day, you know, we used to we used to make deals based on a handshake and, and candy bars used to be five cents. Like, I, I don't know exactly if that's true, but like maybe the opposition is coming from older voters, although you would suspect that they're more conservative. Maybe they don't just like this new brand of conservatism. I'm not really sure, but I do find all of this very funny. Now, to be fair, there were people in the article saying, I actually like her. I plan to vote for her. But it's really interesting to see this much resistance to her, even if it's just anecdotal evidence from the Republican Party, because, you know, you would think by this point in time that MAGA Republicanism has kind of infiltrated all sectors of the Republican base, you know, throughout the country. But it doesn't necessarily seem like that's the case. Now, Holtorf, her primary opponent, quoted in the article who described himself as a cowboy who's straight talking, rooting, shooting. Uh, so he explains that he actually used to be a supporter of hers until she started doing very disrespectful things. Hmm. I wonder what he could be talking about there. Now, listen, I don't know if he would be defending her if he wasn't running against her. Obviously, he has a political reason to say all of a sudden he's against her. But, you know, I wonder if that would have affected him really if he wasn't running against her. But certainly now he's going to weaponize that issue against her. And look, he should. Now, I don't agree with any of these people politically, but I think that their ostensible consistency when it comes to family values, at least, and social conservatism is commendable in the sense that they do appear to be consistent. Now, of course, they probably don't have that same standard when it comes to Trump. But to be fair, I'm not necessarily sure if these same people would vote for Trump in a GOP primary because it hasn't happened in Colorado yet. So we'll have to wait and see. But I mean, here's what I'm going to leave you with here. Temper your expectations because... Even though she has a lot of negative name recognition here, name recognition still does go a long way. And even if somebody doesn't necessarily like her, they could vote for her simply because it's a name that they recognize. But if they're not super invested in national politics, who knows, you know, but she could still win. That's the point that I want to make. But I have to admit that even if, you know, she does win this and I have no idea what's going to happen at this point in time. I do find it a little bit shocking to see how much resistance that she's facing from fellow Republicans. And I find it hilarious because you would think that a Republican running in a GOP primary in, open, in an open seat where she's already an incumbent in, in Congress would be a no-brainer, right? But maybe not. We'll just have to wait and see. I'm really, really interested in seeing the results of this because I don't know how it's going to go. But if she lost, it would be completely hilarious. Want more? 
visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.